Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 46 of the Double Density Podcast with your hosts, Brian and Angelo. First things first, Angelo, what a wild ride last week was, wasn't it? Last week was a little bit of a, of a diversion from our normal uh, double density type show. It was like a, I equated it to like a stoner NPR type deal. Right, where we just went off on one subject for about an hour, pretty much. Yeah, and we kind of had some weird ponderings, like uh, that uh, you picture college kids thinking about uh, late in the evening in their dorm rooms. It was a really good way to celebrate the new year, I think. Yeah, it was. Uh, but moving on, I uh, this week... Uh, happy New Year to you. Yeah. What? Yeah. Sorry, what? Uh, well, okay. Brian, with your Happy New Year's distracting me, please stop. Okay, let's take a break. No, right. not really. Let's not take a break. <laughs> 30 seconds of the podcast. <laughs> we often talk about smartphones here on the podcast, and uh, we are now in the position of seeing tech companies kind of stuck in a uh, no-win situation uh, when it comes to the smartphones in all of our pockets. Yeah, there was a, a recent article in the Wall Street Journal you pointed uh, me to about how people loving uh, their old small smartphone is a problem for both Apple and Samsung and everybody else. The thing is, is that Apple and Samsung and all these other companies that make these phones are kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you make a smartphone that people love so much that they're going to want to keep it for three or four years, investors and uh, people that follow the money side of things are going to say, well, look, they're stagnating. They're not making any sales because people love their old smartphone so much. They're going to have to do something to make people want to buy a new phone. On the flip side... If you make people want to was buy that a, a phone. Was that a phone pun on the flip side? No, it wasn't, but you turned it into one, so thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, dad joke one for me, dad joke zero for you on this episode. So I take the slight lead. Yeah, perfect. We'll, we'll see how far you can take that lead. The thing is, after before you interrupted me, I was going to say that if Apple and Samsung and companies make phones that are not good enough to last you a few years, they're going to be accused of making phones with planned obsolescence. And there we see the damned if you do, damned if you don't problem. We've talked about this a couple of times, um, most recently, the idea of uh, the computer model of selling phones, right? Because Apple saw a slight dip in sales last quarter, and they're not sure if it's going to continue to be a trend or if it was an anomalous kind of thing. But I do believe that we are shifting over to um, people buying phones on a much less frequent uh, basis. And therefore, yeah, uh, kind of looking at it at a no win, right? Either your product is too good and lasts for too long and keeps a lot of people happy or your phone isn't the best and can break easily and uh, makes you more repeat customers because they know that you have a baseline of quality. Uh, which is good enough for them, but not uh, stellar enough to keep a phone going for long. And uh, I've come across that uh, recently, and then now in my family, we have three iPhones in use. There's my iPhone 8 Plus, my wife's 6S, and uh, today it's fun. So it's uh, spring break here in uh, Quebec. My family is away, not too far. They're at my mother-in-law's, sleeping there and enjoying the country weather and air. And my daughter brought her iPhone 5S with her that we've given her. It has no SIM card, so it's not a real phone. It's just she can use it on Wi-Fi. And I spent the day texting back and forth with her, and texting with an 8-year-old is a lot of fun. I think you might want to cut that portion out. Why? (laughs) Texting with an 8-year-old is fun. Oh, you're joking. Another dad (laughs) joke for Brian. 
<laughs> I really thought you were serious. No, no, no. I could definitely say how can be fun to like sort of uh, deal with your daughter in a different kind of capacity, right? Yeah, and let me correct that. Okay, let me say texting with my own eight-year-old child there is go. fine. <laughs> see, context. Context is what we need for this. But yeah, I could definitely see how it can be fun, you know, um, you knowing your daughter, uh, you know, in real life and not having to deal with that kind of much. Is, I, I guess it's kind of interesting to see and talk to her uh, in ways that you're not naturally used to. Well, and she discovered all the fun things you can do with iMessage uh, yesterday. I showed her how to hold the send button and then you get all those extra options of sending it loud or sending it with balloons. Uh, her personal favorite is sending things with invisible ink so that I have to rub the screen whenever I want to try and see what she wrote. Oh, yes. And uh, Yeah, so she sent me a, a message saying, my favorite is the one with invisible ink. And I sent her an invisible ink message saying, um, I find the invisible ink very annoying. <laughs> Did she continue to do it, though? Yes, of course. It was fun. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, keeping things going with the uh, phone uh, tip, I guess, uh, Asus is throwing their uh, new Zenfone 5 out there. And it kind of has a uh, feature that begun with the iPhone uh, 10, which is the notch. Apple was kind of panned about this notch being on their phone, how it was an eyesore. Uh, and now it seems to have actually been relatively successful. People kind of think of it as a differentiator with the iPhone X. From everything I've heard, most people say it kind of like disappears once you have used the phone long enough, they hardly notice it. And, and Apple's notch does have a purpose. In it, it holds all this extra tech to do the face ID thing that apparently works very well. And now um, at the Mobile World Congress, I think that's what that's called, all these Android phones are coming off, uh, coming out with these notches that don't really have the same use as the one Apple put into the iPhone X. And it's more just of a cosmetic thing just to kind of make people seem like they have an iPhone. And I don't want to say ugly, but as, you know, it's just there, the notch. These other ones don't seem to have taken really the care that Apple took with designing it into the iPhone to make it look nice. There's all these um, breakdowns of how nicely the notch is actually designed. And the ones of these other phones kind of are just there. And it's almost just, look at me, I have a notch too. Come and buy this phone. Don't buy the iPhone 10. Right. I think the big thing too is that uh, for Apple, the notch was designed for more than aesthetic purposes. Whereas, uh, for example, uh, in the article that we'll link to in the show notes, Asus is saying that the consumers want the notch because they want it to look like an iPhone, but they don't really consider the functionality of the notch at all um, in terms of, of design. Yeah, it's kind of a silly reason to put that in. It's Sometimes you wonder... The market demands. Like, yeah, it's, it's such a weird thing, because I know for sure if Apple didn't have to put that notch in there, they would not have put it. Their preference is to just have a complete glass phone, and that's what they're eventually going to head to. Now these people, it's like children are running some of these companies. You just wonder what's going on in the boardroom. It's like uh, one of the executives sits down. It's like, I want a notch. But sir, there's no, I want a notch like the iPhone, like this phone I use. I think it's looking at the bottom line too, right? So if you can trick enough people into buying a, uh, I don't want to say a bargain store discount, but a discounted version of something that looks like an iPhone, then it's a win-win because a lot of people don't have the money to necessarily uh, buy an iPhone 10, right? Yeah, it it reminds me of back in the day when I, I remember going to the video store with friends and we would see uh, some movie, let's say uh, the, the Transformers. This is the one that pops in my head, even though the Transformers is a terrible movie, but still you'd see uh, the Transformers was out, 
but there would be this other movie called The Transmorphers. Shouts out to Silent Pictures. Yeah, and it. And so you know exactly what I'm talking about because you're like a film buff. And there'd be like right next to it, and it was like the fake version of this movie, and people would be duped into renting it because the actual movie that people wanted wasn't in. Can you think of other examples like that? I'm sure there's tons. One of my favorite ones, actually, is uh, so far in the 70s in Italy, there was a rule that uh, you were allowed to make your own regional sequel to a Hollywood film. Italian ingenuity. Uh, so uh, in the mid 70s, Alien 2 came out. Really? I did not know this. Yeah, Italian. Uh, so it's Italian. It's Alien Two colon on Earth. I own it on Blu-ray, of course. And uh, so it is. Uh, yeah, it's it's a sequel to Alien, uh, based on Earth. Uh, that exists out there. It's not very good. I mean, it, it's not very good in the same way that like it's so fun to watch because it is bad. Is it in Italian or English? Uh, it's dubbed in English, but is probably partially shot in Italian. That sounds so odd. Anyway, this sort of reminds me of that. But yes, that is out there and exists. Uh, but yeah, so I don't think I will be purchasing a Zenfone 5. I don't know about you. Probably not. Yeah, and I'm going to just switch from uh, iOS to a fake knockoff uh, iPhone 10. That sounds like me. Oh, perfect. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, you linked me uh, this week to a Vox video about uh, how a phone makes you dependent on it. I thought that was a very interesting video. Well, it it goes back to some of the stuff we've talked about, how people are always on their phones and how to kind of get off your phone from uh, to prevent addiction. And I'm not sure if I'm like totally sold on iPhones or phone, smartphones in general being completely addictive, but I get where it's going and understand the uh, things they do to these phones to make them more enticing to people. And the video is great. The thing I took away, and I'm sure uh, if there's anybody else who's commented on this video, probably has said the same thing if they're like me. I wondered why they didn't use a phone when they were kind of showing the iPhone that didn't have a screen protector on it with bubbles and like dust stuck underneath it. Did you notice that? Yeah, I did. I didn't know. Like, I don't understand. Like, it's it's kind of basic. Yeah, it was really just weird. It's just, can you not get a, like a nicer phone? It, it's like, does anybody have an iPhone? Quick, quick, quick. It's like they didn't think about yeah, it. It was like, where's the office phone? Or maybe they wanted to make it look uh, comforting to like everybody else's crappy phones. Who knows? I just thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, we'll link to it. We'd love to hear what you think. If you want to go ahead and tweet at us, double underscore density, facebook.com slash double density podcast. Same thing on Instagram. Or you can head over to double density.net and click the contact button and drop us a line. Drop us a couple of lines. Yeah, of course. I won't get a notification for it, though, because most of my notifications are turned off. There we go. He doesn't even get notifications from me anymore. The uh, Well, the only things I, I actually get notified I for... I thought we were friends. I get notified from you if you send me a text message. If you send me a direct message on Twitter, I won't notice until I go look at Twitter. Sometimes it's like two or three days. It's not that long. Come on. Cold out here in the DM world. It's cold. Uh, do you remember there was like a whole time where uh, you had started a group DM? And yes, with Rob from Our Strange Skies. And we, re- we had a very pleasant conversation for multiple days before you decided to check your phone. Well, because I didn't realize this, but uh, I use a uh, Twitter client called TweetBot. And I didn't know that none of the Twitter clients have the API to be able to actually get group DMs. So I didn't notice until by accident I logged into Twitter.com, which I, I used to rarely use because I, I didn't think I needed to. And I said, hey, what's this uh, one on my little mail icon? And then I saw there was this huge conversation between you and Rob that you had invited me to and I had not been part of until then. 
The best part is that there are multiple instances in which we uh, threw your name out there to see if you'd answer us and you didn't. Yeah, it's it's just kind of odd uh, that it it took me that long, but now you know why. Speaking of things that take long, uh, Apple, because let's keep talking about Apple, I guess, has a couple of problems with the Apple Park. Well, there's a (laughs) dad joke time. There's a clear problem at the Apple Park where the uh, glass walls of the offices are so clear that people are walking into them and there's been actual 911 calls of people that have been injured because they walked into the glass. Uh, the worst offender apparently is the wall at the cafeteria where it looks like it'll be the wall that will open up that has a door, but it's not. And people just walk into it. Do you think that they had conversations prior to this uh, Cupertino building being open about this kind of thing? Or did they assume that like uh, most people would figure out where doors are around these parts? Well, interesting you say that. I linked an article. Um, I'm going to link an article in the show notes from the San Francisco Chronicle where they were warned about the danger the glass posed to people. Who uh, warned them? Was it a like a window washing conglomerate? No, it was an inspector of some kind. Oh, of, of some kind. Of some kind. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. This raises many questions, though, about uh, the human experience, the future, and knowing how to use tech not like an idiot. Yeah, exactly. And look, I want to tell you exactly who who said this. The the article starts with it says when Albert Salvador, Cupertino's building official, visited Apple's new spaceship building last year, he worried that people would walk into the cafeteria's glass walls because they couldn't distinguish them from the equally clear automatic doors. After he brought up the issue, a contractor walked straight into the glass. <laughs> <laughs> it it reads like comedy, but apparently it's true because it's in You the know what really helps? I think and I'm being very honest with that. The use of light. So like reflecting off of the Yeah, glass? or tiny lights that let you know like the parameters by which weird doors exist. Or just good old-fashioned post-it notes. Sure, anything. We, at, at work, we have clear doors uh, that uh, divides up the working space in the kitchen, and we have stickers on the door so to let people know where the door for the kitchen is. Well, look, I'm sure uh, a few of the employees at the Apple store, at the Apple campus have... Uh, Apple stickers that came with their many Apple devices so they can use those. I don't know. I guess you can always carry a laser pointer around and start shooting around, making sure that uh, the doors do open that you know where you're going. That's a great idea, Brian. I'm sure that's going to be even safer than people just started getting laser beams in the eyes. And I'm just going to go ahead and uh, open up twitter.com. Go ahead and hit the ad button at Apple. Maybe I'll let them know how I feel about this. Yeah, just say, look, guys, I hear you have a clear problem with your glass uh use some lasers there we go speaking of lasers though uh you linked me to a wonderful little game that i may actually buy for the ios platform so it's a game called part-time ufo by hal laboratories yeah it's super cute and hal makes kirby the super cute nintendo character the game is not that expensive and it seems like a lot of fun yeah, so the only thing is that it's it's $5.50, my friend. Oh, my I goodness. I'm not ready to f- f- farm that out. No, just go buy yourself a latte instead for $8. Well, there you go. That, that'll be one of the things I do, I guess, right? Uh, so, yeah, um, Hal has also uh, designed uh, games in the Earthbound series. Yeah, was Earthbound um, done by Hal? I didn't realize that. Yeah, so the Mother slash Earthbound series, I guess, would be the best way of putting it. But yeah, apart from all the Kirby stuff, they also did one of the my favorite 
um, Nintendo properties, which is uh, Super Mario, uh, Super Smash Brothers. I, I have actually been playing that with my kids lately. They uh, they seem to really enjoy smashing with Smash Brothers. Who did they play as? We kind of choose different ones. My son really likes Yoshi and uh, Bowser. Uh, my daughter seems to like Rob the Robot, who we recently got. And um, she likes Zelda and Samus and Link. I'm partial to Samus. She's fun. Sometimes they use Mario. Is Kirby still on the roster? Kirby's there, of course. Kirby was such a cheap character in the original. Was he? I never played the original, to be honest with you. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was shorter. He had a uh, a shield and a little rock that he could turn into. Very cheap if you knew how to play him. Double density. Continuing on in the realm of uh, Nintendo and games, uh, big news uh, this past week is a, a long lost Donkey Kong sequel was recently unearthed and is now available in a ROM form for everyone to uh, enjoy. And I use enjoy in a very broad term. It's uh, a PC version of uh, the, I guess, much maligned Donkey Kong 3, which uh, did you ever play Donkey Kong 3? Yeah, you had to jump around on platforms with like um uh like a like a fly like anti insect repellents. Yeah, you played Stanley the bug guy or Stanley the the I was gonna say executioner. That's not the right term. What's, what's <laughs> the, the bug the, the man? People, yeah, what what is the word for bugs? Exterminator. Exterminator. Thank you. I was never gonna get there. Uh, yeah, I played it on my um, retro uh, pie when I uh, initially got it because my kid wanted to see uh, all the Donkey Kong, uh, all the Donkey Kong um, iterations, and we played Donkey Kong one through three. Well, Donkey Kong two, I guess, is Donkey Kong Junior, right? Yes. Yeah. So, and then that was Don- then Donkey Kong three, which was, I guess, the least. Uh, loved version mario was there it was just donkey kong being uh donkey kong but hanging off a weird tree with he would punch um beehives and they would come out the bees would come after you it was very it was very much an odd game and this is a just a really odd version of that uh donkey kong game yeah so uh this port was done by hudson soft games who are most famous for i guess the bomberman series yeah and adventure island and adventure island yeah um and bonk bonk's adventure uh, but yeah, so they uh, created this port, which kind of, I guess, uh, remained faithful to the uh, Nintendo version of it. Uh, there's some videos online and we'll link to uh, the English or the UK version of the, the Kotaku article all about this. It's kind of interesting the way that these uh, games appear in the wild. And that got us thinking, like, what are some of the the more interesting games uh, that you know are of that have been, quote unquote, lost, right? So the games that never came out uh, commercially. Yeah, one of the more um, recently famous ones is Star Fox 2 because they decided to, after many, many years, I guess 20 years, release it as part of the SNES Classic. But for a while, it was available as uh, a repro. They had found most of the source code out there and put it on... Um, there was a, It was a ROM that was available. I actually have it on my uh, RetroPie. I have not actually played it, though, because I went back and played Star Fox, and, oh boy, does that not hold up at all. I don't know. I kind of like it, and I think we got into this uh, in our episode Super Nintendo Dreams, but I felt like it's uh, it's not that bad. And, uh, yeah, the ROM that you're talking about was actually like a... It was a 95 or 97% complete, uh, percent complete version of the game, so pretty much a done... Uh, fact 
out there out in the ROM world. And I guess, yeah, it is one of the most famous iterations of a lost game. Uh, other ones kind of include uh, some of my favorites are the um, so the Mother series, which we were just talking about before. Right. So Mother 3 uh, never saw release here uh, in North America. Uh, even after the success of Earthbound, because Earthbound was technically Mother 2 in Japan, which was a sequel to the NES game Mother. And I mean, to say Earthbound was a success is kind of like really stretching it, because it it wasn't, it was like more of a cult hit than anything else. People found the game very strange, and the fact that it also came with its own uh, guide, because they thought that the North American audience would not do well with that type of RPG. Um but that proved to be wrong. That it's it's a beloved game at this point. One of my favorites, to be honest. And uh, Mother Three, I never really looked into it too much. Although, was there a later fan translation of it? Yeah, so that came out. I don't know. I want to say like seven or eight years ago. So around two thousand ten, if not early. I, I'm kind of fuzzy on that. I do know that I read. Um, a series of articles about uh, a pretty good fan translation coming out of there. Uh, yeah, I want to say seven, eight years ago. And that was supposed to be for the Nintendo 64? Yes. Uh, and uh, it never came to be here in North America. It's a little too bad. Uh, and um, we were talking about Star Fox before, and the FX chip was another thing that ended up being uh, affected by this. Uh, There's some games that were supposed to come out towards the end of the cycle of the super nintendo and the thing is is the fx chip was supposed to push 3d graphics and what happened is the playstation came out and that kind of ruined the whole fx chip because you would see something made with the fx chip such as Star Fox, uh and then you look at the playstation and that stuff will look like garbage it's i think one of the main contributors to Star Fox 2 being canceled is that there were more powerful consoles coming out and it was kind of just of a waste for them. Well, I mean the, uh, uh, the super effects two chip was running doom for the super Nintendo, which was a hot piece of garbage in terms of a port, right. Compared to something that could have shown up, um, on a PlayStation. Oh yeah, for sure. And it was, it was back in the days of the bit wars. Uh, 16 bit was not as good as 32 bit. And I do miss the days though of, getting excited over special uh, chips inside of cartridges. Uh, I remember the first time I heard of this was the MMC5 or something. I'm I'm just going from memory, but it was a special chip inside of Castlevania 3 for the Nintendo. And it made Four. it... Um, no, no, no. That's the Super Nintendo one. You're oh, so sorry, young, I heard Brian. <laughs> I heard... Sorry, I heard... Whenever I hear Nintendo now, I hear Super before it. I think I'm highly trained due to my childhood. Or you're just hearing things. Oh, probably, yeah. So Castlevania 3, not 4, that, that, that was super. This is just regular old Castlevania. It, uh, it had a special chip. The thing is, as I realized later on, is that special chip didn't make it have the special music that the Japanese version had in it. I, if you're interested, go online and listen to the difference between Castlevania 3 in North America and Castlevania 3 in um, Japan. It's astounding how great the music was in that Japanese version. Although it was actually really good in the North American version, even better in Japan. But that's not a lost game. You know what uh, is a lost game, though? Super, uh, Super Mario 64 2. Yeah, that would have been interesting to see that. And Nintendo seems to do this, where they have 
like one of their uh, their major franchise they only do one version on a console and it makes me kind of sad i'm hoping to see this kind of change with the switch and seeing how successful it is to have more than just one version of a game uh you know right. for one of the for example uh, there's only one main 3D Mario game on the Wii U, and the Wii U was kind of like uh, not a very successful console. A stopgap. Uh, it had a really, yeah, but it had a really good Mario game, Super uh, Mario um, World 64. Super uh, <laughs> World 64. I'm I'm stuck in the 64 day Super Mario World 3D. Excellent, excellent, excellent game. Uh, the main reason why uh, a Wii U was added to my household. The um, there was only Super Mario Sunshine on the Nintendo GameCube. Another, uh, well, do I want to say great Mario game? No, it was a good Mario game. Although Mario Sunshine was not uh, a well-liked Super Mario game, unfortunately. I thought it was kind of cool, although the backpack did get annoying after a bit. I never actually played Sunshine, so I've only watched people play it. And I can understand how annoying it can be. Uh, well, another interesting point, though, about Nintendo is that they tend to develop sequels towards the end of their production cycles, right? So Star Fox 2 uh, was about to be released bef- right before the 64. And the way that I understand the timeline for Super Mario 64 2, it was pretty much right before the GameCube dropped. So because they were trying to develop the disk system, the 64DD, um, and they were planning on using Super Mario 64 2 uh, as part of the launch of that. But then they decided to scrap that and go with the GameCube. Yeah, and, and this seems to happen also with... Um between this, the Nintendo GameCube and the Wii launch, where um, Zelda was a launch title for the Wii, but I actually got it on the GameCube. And now apparently that game is super rare and actually worth a decent amount for, uh, what is it, like a 15-year-old game at this point. Get yourself a Zenfone 5 with that money. Oh, wow. I'll have a special notch. <laughs> uh, one of the more famous uh, games that has failed to materialize uh, in recent years is PT, which we've talked bo- before about on this podcast. Yeah, that's also, I guess, sort of worth something in virtual. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say even money, although you said you can sell a PlayStation with it. Yeah, on, apparently, but-, but we couldn't figure out whether or not it was ownership of the PSN uh, persona, the like the login info. But that was a cool game, and. Uh, for example, I still have it downstairs. There's no way I would go right now to go play that game downstairs while I'm alone. In the alone. House. Yeah. yeah. All alone. Well, I'd be you don't have to necessarily. Uh, one of the more famous uh, or infamous, I guess, uh, cases of a game not really uh, being available is the uh, BS Legend of Zelda game. Yeah, this is a poor choice of uh, the way it's uh, yeah. named in North America. But I'm uh, going to try and say the Japanese title and then the American translation. Okay, I'm listening. BS Zelda no Densetsu Inishi no Sekiban, uh, which was for the Stella View, which was a satellite ser- a service that lets you download games for set periods of time. They were only available. Um, for certain amounts of time, so you had to play them within that time frame. That's so uh, something that felt futuristic at the time, but now seems completely archaic. Like, uh, okay, so very quickly, uh, so that title translates to The Legend of Zelda Ancient Stone Tablets. Someone actually managed to find enough um, data on it in order to build a ROM that you can play. I have yet to download that ROM, but I think I will eventually. It sounds like an interesting idea. I did watch a video of it on YouTube, uh, which I think we'll link in the show notes. Super strange and super interesting at the same time. It seems to use pretty much the same assets that uh, A Legend uh, of Zelda Link to the Past used, 
but in a whole different way. And the main character is this weird little uh, avatar you would use for Yesha Teleview. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that's the thing is that like, it wasn't necessarily just uh, the console itself, but you had to have the peripheral for it. And you had to pay extra for it as well. Uh, it was like a weird cable package. Do you remember the North American version of that, the X-Band? That rings a bell. <sighs> yeah, so the X-Band worked in the same way that, uh, did you ever uh, see a Sega Genesis with the knuckle, uh, Sonic and Knuckles, where the top of the cart opened up to put in Sonic or Knuckles 1, 2, or 3? Yeah, and then you, if you go online, you can see all those things of all those carts stacked one on top of each other. Right. Uh, so in this case, for the X-Band, you paid uh, 20 bucks for the actual hardware, and then you paid um, 5 bucks a month for, like, you could connect 50 times, and each other connection was 15 cents. That, that sounds like it ends up being really expensive. Well, you got to run a whole other, like, phone line too, right? That's nuts. It's... It's so funny how we tried so hard to like shoehorn technology that just just wasn't there yet, uh, and now seems like a joke. Yeah, I mean that's uh, yeah. The nineties were a weird time of like connectivity, like uh, the X band and uh, getting the internet on your television uh, towards the end of the decade. Internet TV, very strange. A lot of classic concepts there. Uh, another game that uh, never came out. Because uh, we kind of glossed over this one. We're talking about the effects chip is the effects fighter game, which was advertised a bunch. Yeah, it was kind of all over the place. They had been talking about it in magazines and stuff. It was kind of getting a decent push and then never came out again because it kind of was towards the end of the life cycle of the SNES. There is newer, better stuff coming out. What's the point of putting this game out that nobody's going to end up buying? The other thing, too, is that I do believe they shelved it in favor of going with Killer Instinct. Oh yeah, true. That's bec- and there was another thing that it's it was just way too similar as well to Killer Instinct. Yeah, exactly. Uh, very quickly, a couple more on our list. An NES port of SimCity. So uh, most famously, there is an SNES port of SimCity, but there was a uh, a version of SimCity for uh, the Nintendo Entertainment System that was slated to be released at one point, and that was recently discovered. Yeah, as well as a full ROM of the California Reasons game, which was canceled due to the waning popularity of uh, the license. I used to remember seeing so many of those California Raisin commercials. They even had their own Christmas special. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that. Uh, They were big at one point, but the game came too close to the end of their uh, lives as grapes, no raisins. And uh, yeah, it was kind of shelved. It was supposed to be sort of like... uh, Sort of like the uh, the the Capcom Disney games, so it's probably going to be a decent game. I haven't played it. Uh, I think I have the ROM. I should give it a try as well. There we go. And with that, let's head on over to the paranormal section this week. Testing. Can anyone hear me? My name is Toby, and I'm the host of the Secret Transmission Podcast. We are a show that discusses the paranormal, conspiracies, the supernatural, UFOs, cryptozoology, and anything else weird. Our show is transmitted to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. You can also follow us on Twitter for updates, at SecretTransPod. So get ready to put on your tinfoil hats and come learn with us as we try to explain the unexplainable. Welcome back to Double Density, and as always, we are switching gears from tech to the paranormal. So the first thing this week is that the U.S. government has a history of trying to hire psychics to look at stuff. I thought this article was uh, was hilarious because 
they never found anything. And when they didn't find anything, they blamed it apparently on the butterfly effect, which is kind of funny. Well, yeah, of course. You change the course of history by altering it at every single instant you're alive. So, yeah, of course this makes sense that none of these things came to pass. Just like uh, Major Ed Dames and all the remote viewing he's done about the end of the worlds and how that hasn't worked out for him. See, I don't know. People seem to believe in remote viewing. You've kind of dabbled in it, and uh, I don't think it's a thing. I don't think it's a thing either. I do have the complete how-to remote view uh, training uh, program, I guess would be the best way of putting it in multiple DVDs of it, which I obviously uh, did not purchase from the Ed Deems website. Yeah. And going through this article just kind of shows that it was, it was sort of just people trying to just scattershot everything and trying to guess everything sort of like cold reading, but on paper. Yeah. There's a lot of really fun stuff. Like they have um, people draw, uh, pictures of who they think these people are because they're trying to get them to like picture people in the future and things. There's also a lot of really great transcripts of <laughs> people going through things. Uh, I love the picture of the guy who's who appears in like two different ways. Uh, yeah, it's it's actually pretty funny. It's like at one point he's like uh, a skinny guy with like square gl- glasses and it looks good enough, and then all of a sudden he becomes this uh, bigger guy with a lot of hair. And this huge lapel, more akin to like um, like a kingpin or something. The one on the left looks like Roger Ebert, and the one on the right doesn't look like Roger Ebert. <laughs> okay, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> it's just funny how they're like, you need to find this guy. He's going to do something sometime. Uh, get us a picture. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so there's a lot of really great transcript excerpts in there too, so you want to check that one out. Secondly, can I borrow like $50,000 from you? What would you do with $50,000, Brian? I'm planning on cloning my pet, just like Barbara Streisand. Reading stuff like this, it's sort of uh, back to our discussion of last week where it's like something, the start of something bad. So like last week was the start of um, AI taking over. This week, the zombie apocalypse starts with a dog. Yeah, and I mean, uh, things like gene splicing and things like that exist, right? So you could create a dog who will never, ever, ever back down. We can, uh, and then we could put that dog's mind into a metal dog. Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. Continuing our discussion for last week, because that's all that we do here is we uh, circle topics over and over. Uh, Yeah, let's see a dog with a a recovered brain with some gene splicing who won't back down. And hey, the dog also breathes fire. That'll be great. So we'll have the robot dogs as scouts, and then their overlords will be these clone dogs that can talk and breathe fire. Perfect. And I love how this came out in the middle of a uh, a long-form piece uh, with Variety, right? So this kind of got slipped in right in the middle because uh, Barbara Streisand gets interviewed about her career, and right in the middle she talks about uh, cloning her dog. It's just strange how she kind of just stuck it in there in the middle of an article about herself, how she just cloned a dog and maybe starting the end of the world. It's like a really weird, like humble brag almost of like what you can get away with as a famous person. It's almost like something she would have done on those South Park episodes that made fun of her. Oh, the Mecha Streisand episodes. Yeah, that's uh, that's like old school South Park. I can't believe that shows 20 years old. Let's move to the uh, main portion of the paranormal section this week is something that both you and I are kind of uh, I'm super interested in. I know a bunch about and I don't think, you know, as much, but you're just as equally interested in talking about one of the more um, famous events, I guess, of the past uh, 70 or 80 years 
in the paranormal realm. And uh, it is something that is easily disputed yet still enduring. And what we are talking about, of course, is the Philadelphia experiment. The first time I heard about the Philadelphia experiment was actually watching the movie. Uh, I think my sister had rented it and I popped it in. I think I was probably like, was 1984, probably saw it in like 86, 87. So I was like nine or 10 years old. Uh, yeah, I just thought it was super weird. Uh, so quick side note on that. So uh, Stuart Raphael, who directed uh, the first, because there's a sequel to the fictitious uh, Philadelphia experiment uh, that was done in the early 90s. But uh, so the director who directed the, in 1984, he directed this, but he also directed a Star Wars takeoff called The Ice Pirates, which I've seen and really enjoyed. And it features such visionaries as Bruce Valanche and Robert Urich in the main role. Uh, Raphael later wants to direct a more famously 1988's Mac and Me, the shameless McDonald's slash E.T., the extraterrestrial mashup that uh, went nowhere fast. I never watched that, except all I know of it is that uh, whenever Paul Rudd would be on Conan O'Brien's show, he would show a clip from Mac and Me instead of the movie he was actually there to promote. And it is a horrible movie. There's a uh, dance number inside of McDonald's that very shamelessly plugs McDonald's. If you can, go watch it. It's a... it's a really interesting movie in a lot of ways. I hate it with a passion, but I can understand why it was made. Shameless consumerism. Double density. So now that we're back from Diversion Land, let's get into the Philadelphia Experiment, right? So, supposedly, on or around October 20th, 1943, it's been purported that the USS Eldridge, which I'll get into in a bit, disappeared through time. The story goes that there was some experimental equipment on board that rendered the ship invisible to any devices. But the equipment malfunctioned, leading to a host of issues. There have been tales of people going insane due to being on board, and uh, two sailors uh, apparently, allegedly, uh, disappeared and were never found again, according to eyewitnesses. One purported witness, uh, Carlos Miguel Allende, which we'll talk about later, uh, who's the basis for most of this lore, explains that the ship went invisible, was then teleported to New York, teleported to another dimension where there were aliens, and then finally teleported through time to, of course, 1984. Uh, So the basis of this is based around Albert Einstein's unified field theory, which uh, is still a theoretical uh, potential theory that I can't even begin to explain the mechanics of, but suffice it to say that it exists um, on paper and is not actively uh, being done. So the idea is that uh, equipment based around this theory was placed on the ship and then the equipment went haywire because the idea was that this equipment was supposed to render the ship invisible. But of course, uh, something much more dastardly had happened. And with the climate of the time, with the war going on and people trying to figure out the best way to outsmart the Germans... If you kind of think about it, it's there's a bit of plausibility that they were testing these bizarre um, and out there weapons and defensive mechanisms for their ships. Oh, for sure. And I mean, we'll get into that uh, as we uh, debunk this narrative later on. And there's a lot of really good explanations as to what actually happened on that ship and other ships around it. Uh, but yeah, a quick note about the USS Eldridge. It's uh, designated sign as the DE-173 and was mostly a vessel used... Uh, to escort uh, men and materials to support Allied operations in North Africa and uh, Southern Europe. She made multiple voyages to deliver a convoy safely to places like uh, Casablanca and Oran, right? Mid-1945, so in May, um, it makes contact with probably some kind of charge uh, that was sent up to it and immediately attacked, and then uh, it arrived in Okinawa, uh, Okinawa later on, 
and then was placed out of commission uh, in June 1946. So it kind of had like this really storied life as like a, an aid vessel in World War II efforts to make sure that um, things, uh, ammunition, other supplies uh, were brought safely to the Southern European front. So it actually continued being used past the date of the experiment that uh, they've talked about. Correct. Supposedly with all of the uh, crew on board that went through this dastardly uh, otherworldly experience. See, I didn't, I didn't realize that. I always thought it had been, they stopped using it after that because one of the major things I heard that had happened to some of the crew is that they were fused into the body of the ship, into the hull and stuff. Oh, and, there's all kinds of graphic horror stories about what happens to the crew. Yeah. That, whenever I heard stories about this, it really horrified me that there was something that could possibly happen like this. And uh, having looked into it, so I'll be honest with you, the Philadelphia experiment, I've always been interested in it. It's always sort of been in the back of my mind because it was something I was interested in more when I was a kid, much right. less so recently where my interest with paranormal has gone uh, mostly to the things I, I think are maybe remotely even possible since I've, I'm such a skeptic, but the, the stuff I've concentrated more on is trying to figure out what is it that people are actually seeing and not having any sort of belief in what's like older things that I thought of like the Philadelphia experiment. Although I always thought something had happened. I just didn't think to the extent of what was said in the stories. Right. So the story of the USS Eldridge slash the Philadelphia experiment, um, the story doesn't come up during wartime. It actually comes up uh, first in the mid 50s. This guy, uh, Morris K. Jessup, uh, begins chronicling. So from 1955 onwards, every year he writes a book until his uh, death in 1959. So uh, Jessup is known as one of the first chroniclers of UFO lawyers who believes in the ancient astronaut theory that, you know, we've been visited before and given all these tools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, years and years before Eric Von Daniken's uh, Chariot of the Gods kind of covers the same uh, information there. Oh, so he started with a bias then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, he has a, a book called UFO in the Bible, right? Or UFOs in the Bible. And he kind of goes into there. Um, so he starts receiving these letters from a guy uh, named Carlos Miguel Allende, right? So this guy uh, starts sending him dozens and dozens of letters. Um, Jessup starts to dismiss him as a crackpot because of the fact that, like, all of these letters are just unending and they have, like, all these explanations about the unified theory. Like it just, there's a lot there going on. There's a lot of like pseudo math and science that's being thrown his way. That he's not very interested in talking about, uh, purportedly Allende is an elusive figure, uh, according to anyone who searched for him during that time frame. He often leaving a lot of different, uh, forwarding addresses, uh, throughout the continental United States. Um, and he's very hard to reach apparently. Well, he's, uh, he's part alien, isn't he? Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> uh. So, uh, tragically, Jessup commits suicide in 1959, and uh, no note is found. Uh, conspiracy theory enthusiasts contend that he was murdered, uh, didn't kill himself, because he was on the verge of discovering something super dramatic about the Philadelphia experiment. But all the evidence, of course, points to natural causes. We're always on the verge of discovering something super important when it comes to something paranormal. And we never get there. What's um, What's really funny is when we start reading stuff that was published years ago saying that in a few years we're going to do this or in a few years we're going to do that and we're going to know this soon the president's going to release the documents whatever and here we are so many years later and we know nothing i demand boat disclosure in this case 
Boat disclosure. That's uh, yeah. That's your new thing. <laughs> yeah, I d- I'm uh, a stalwart of boat disclosure. Bring it to me. Bring the boat disclosure to me. So, purportedly, Alenia also kind of describes himself as a nomad, someone who has a uh, gypsy-like quality to himself. And the word gypsy is very interesting and important, as it starts to appear in a copy of uh, a Jessup book called The Case for the UFO that's sent to the Office of Naval Intelligence in 1957. So, a copy of uh, this book lands in officers' laps, and it has a ton of handwritten annotations that make reference to extra-dimensional beings and that uh, also make comments on Jessup's theory. Upon receiving a copy of this marked-up edition of the book from uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence, Jessup remarks that he's pretty sure the handwritings are uh, belonging to Lenny because he's received dozens of his letters by now. And is there a clear moment where he went from thinking this guy was a crackpot to starting to believe him? I think it's just the sheer amount of correspondences with the sort of like the pseudo math and science that exists in there that could in theory make sense. And he's just name dropping like Pete, like Albert Einstein, for example, right? Who, um, some of his theories were purported by Lenny to be used in a lot of the technology that was on this ship. But it turns out that Lenny is not his real name. Of course it isn't. So in July 1979, researcher Robert A. Gorman, whose hometown happened to be New Kingston, Pennsylvania, discovered that one of his neighbors, seven-year-old Harold Allen, was in fact Carl's father. So this guy is actually named Carl M. Allen. Carl was born on May 31st, 1925 in Springfield, uh, sorry, in Springdale, uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, it turns out he had no gypsy blood whatsoever. Carl had three brothers and a sister. And Gorman's investigation cast an unflattering light on the life of Carl Allen. Although brilliant in school, according to his father, he never really used his mind and never worked very hard at anything except what his brother described as leg pulling. Wait, so his father was still alive in, in when? 19, did you say 69 or 59? 79. Or 79. Oh, 79. His father yeah. was still alive back then? Okay. Yeah. So he must have been really yeah. old. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah, he was 70. Oh yeah, okay, because this is nineteen seventy nine. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. People had kids. People had kids when they were like twelve back then, right? So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the math checks up. But anyways, so it's quickly <sighs> discovered that this man has this alias and then has a history of m- mischief, right? So that immediately casts doubt on um, most of the things that he wrote, right? So then around that time, too, a book comes out in the late 70s. So Charles Berlitz and William L. Moore dropped the Philadelphia Experiment, Project Invisibility, 1979. Berlitz, as you may remember, is responsible for the best-selling Bermuda Triangle book that sold like 20 million copies that we touched upon um, in the Bermuda Triangle episode. And at one point during the book, they point to the Jessup suicide as further proof of this incident occurring and the subsequent cover-up. The problem with this book, of course, is the lack of actual valid sources. So uh, claims run rampant during the book that don't hold up after some simple research is conducted. So Gorman, in researching who uh, this Alendi guy is, it only took him a couple of phone calls to find Carl M. Allen and who he was and where he existed. So he actually did some work and figured something out, unlike the authors of the book. Yeah, that's true. And um, a lot of people post Jessup claim that no verification was done of almost any of the claims made by any of the parties involved um, purported to be uh, either sailors or people hanging around the naval shipyard uh, when the elders disappeared. Well, why ruin the fun of a story by actually looking at the truth and making it more boring? Well, yeah, and that's the whole thing. And we're going to get into that in a sec, because in 1994, uh, in an issue of uh, the Journal of Scientific Exploration, famed ufologist Jacques Vallée dropped an article entitled Anatomy of a Hoax, colon, The Philadelphia Experiment 50 Years Later. 
So he unearthed a procedure aboard the USS Engstrom, which was docked alongside the Eldridge. There was some covert mechanical equipment on the ship meant to degauze it. Uh, to enable to uh, throw off uh, German submarines because they had this very big problem that a lot of the destroyer class ships uh, due to the metal used in their hulls and things like that were easy uh, pickings uh, for German subs. Yeah, they had magnetic torpedoes, so they would degauss the ships to uh, make them less magnetic, which seems insane to me. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think that like that's what was involved in a lot of this. And um, I don't purport to be an expert on naval warfare by any means, but I thought this was super fascinating. Yeah, just this in and of itself is actually an interesting defense mechanism beyond the whole making the ship invisible thing that never actually happened. This The reality of it is actually pretty interesting in itself. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's one of the the different technologies that uh, were created in secret with all of these scientists during World War II in order to uh, make better, uh, faster, more efficient, uh, more deadly ships. Well, that's what it, that was the whole point at that point in the war. They had their only way to, to beat the Germans was to make sure that those U-boats were not destroying their ships and they had to do something. And that something, of course, was Captain America and his companion, Bucky. <laughs> That's a story for a different day, Brian. So in the article, Valley also uh, mentions getting into, talk, into contact with one Mr. Edward Dungeon, who was on board a ship that was docked at the same time as the Eldridge uh, in Philadelphia. And he also provides uh, Valley with satisfactory credentials to establish who he is. And the kicker, it turns out that Dungeon was one of the two men purported missing on the Eldridge. Uh, so he had been in a bar brawl and his fellow sailors covered for him on their ship saying that he had disappeared. And it seems like a lot of that information got conflated, uh, during the creation of this, uh, Philadelphia experiment myth. Yeah. There was a whole story where the, the employees of the bar purported to have seen two sailors disappear before their eyes, but it was just a whole conflation of events because, he and his friends were actually underage and shouldn't have been at that bar. They actually joined the Navy uh, by faking their birth certificates, I think. Right, so they and were 16. they were younger than they should have been. Yeah, exactly. So they were younger than they should have been. So part of the whole thing was to kind of get them out of there to make sure they didn't get in trouble. And everybody was pretty much in on it. So they never actually disappeared like some weird alien thing. They just literally like got got out of there before anything could happen and they, they people they were covered for but this became this whole myth of these two sailors disappearing in a bar right and then suddenly uh the ship disappears in a mist of green smoke the crew meets aliens they end up in 1984 before coming back uh to earth and no one decided to chronicle this until the mid 50s when someone uh, who wasn't even aboard the ship, decides to start writing about this. I just like that with some work, uh, and you can kind of see how... No, 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 with any work. Okay, and and well, you, you see how good of a scientist Jacques Vallée is by reading this article. It's, a, it's relatively long. It's like, a, it's a research paper. It's, it's, it's a scholarly article. Yeah. It's, but it's honestly like a really good, interesting of uh, take on how to break down um, hoaxes or anything paranormal, if you're interested in actually researching something, this article is a must-read. It's based on the Philadelphia experiment, yes, but it shows you how to make sure that the thing you're researching is the real deal, and you're not just wasting your time with another Billy Meyer or something like that. 
Right. And in the article, uh, Valley does something really cool. He outlines 13 features uh, that sort of uh, give a roadmap, I guess, would be the best way of putting it, uh, to the hoax of the Philadelphia experience. And feature number 11, I actually want to read the first paragraph because I thought it was a very good one. Um, so feature number 11, relevance to believers. Giving believers something to do is very important to the success of a hoax because we tend to attach more credence to an event which represents our personal investment in time, energy, and money. How can I get involved is a question often heard from would-be paranormal investigators. The obvious answer is to get a degree in science and be prepared for long and possibly tedious analysis, the study of transcripts, and the compilation of statistics. This is not the answer most UFO enthusiasts are seeking. They want action, the thrill of the chase, and the opportunity to uncover sensational answers quickly. And the thing that Valet did with this story is that he found somebody who was around and actually got the answers to everything. What did actually happen with the ship? It wasn't that it disappeared. So it turns out that the ship purported to be disappeared, or sorry, to purport to have disappeared, actually uh, used a uh, special inland channel, the Chesapeake-Delaware can- uh, Canal, that got them uh, to and from Norfolk, Virginia, uh, in record time, right? So the idea that the ship disappeared and then reappeared the day after through this miraculous miracle uh, is actually broken down with uh, some real hard facts here. That's the thing I found so much fun with when he discovered this person. He just nailed everything that was uh, quote-unquote paranormal about it and just said this is exactly what happened from the fact that uh, it used that channel to get there in six hours instead of a full day to the fact that blew my mind is that not only did he find a witness to what actually happened with those two sailors, this guy was one of those two sailors that's apparently disappeared. And everything else was just made up for embellishment like the the soldiers the 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 sailors actually being fused into the 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 ship all this other stuff it was just testing not mundane equipment it was actually very top secret at the time but it was still stuff that isn't mind-blowing and breaks the laws of physics it's all stuff that was rooted in actual science Right. And my favorite thing is, uh, it's a direct quote here from Dungeon, who says, The Eldridge never disappeared. All four ships went to Bermuda in July 1943 and came back together in early August. During that time, we were also caught in a storm that created a display of green fire accompanied by smelled ozone. The glow abated when it started raining. He explains, too, that the green fire is uh, has to do with like the like an electrical storm. That yeah, often dissipated, fire. yeah, once it starts raining. Um, and so like, yeah, that's the, the kicker for this whole thing is that he manages to find a guy who he can prove was on a ship, uh, next to Eldridge during that time and explained exactly what happened to it, which was, uh, fact based and also explains how, uh, nothing supernatural occurred there. Right. Cause the idea of a cover up this large with that many soldiers and that many families, that's insane. Yeah. And, I I loved this uh, article, actually. It's not the boring, stuffy, uh, scholarly articles that uh, we usually end up having to read. It it, it read almost like um, a short story. Yeah, and like a manual almost. Well, a manual and a short story in that the beginning, you have all this interesting paranormal thing, and then the mystery is solved at the end with uh, some character that shows up and is like his own uh, deus ex machina and just completely uh, fixes everything by answering every question perfectly. It was it was really well done. And again, highly recommended to anybody who's interested in the paranormal. 
yeah, and the last uh, section is something called countermeasures, uh, which I think is is I wish I could print this up and hand this out to every uh, UFO researcher out there and have them sort of sit down and look at this and understand that this is the the basis of good um, scientific exploration when it comes to uh, the supernatural, right? So adding a level of rationality to uh, the proceedings. Well, the next time you appear at a UFO conference, you can have it printed out and just hand it out to random people. Oh, for sure. So. Uh, Valet gives out six tentative guidelines, which I implore all of you to go read. So the first one is disregard self-described experts. That's kind of explanatory. I'm super into that idea. Yes, I like that a lot. There's a lot of uh, quote-unquote experts out there that are far from experts in anything. The second one is disregard the media. So uh, television reports of UFO events and shows like sightings, hard copy, Geraldo, and unsolved mysteries are geared to ratings, not to knowledge, which is true. Yeah, he knew about fake news before all of us. Uh, the third one is look for logical flaws, which is a great idea to do. That's normally the problem with a lot of these cases. The fifth one, uh, the fourth one I think is really interesting. Identify and remove irrelevant drama. So I'm going to read uh, directly from the article. The remarkable feature of the present hoax is that the principal actor, Carl Allen, was only peripherally involved in the events he sensationalized and had no direct knowledge of the equipment he described. Yet he managed to create the entire myth almost single-handedly. Yeah, he just basically created the whole thing. He seemed, do you think he was he was a bit of a kook or that he was just uh, a mischief maker? I think it's a bit of both because to send dozens of letters and then to send an entire book that you've marked up to the Office of Naval Intelligence and kind of creating this myth yourself, I think takes a lot more than just mischief. I do believe that he perhaps believed in some of this or believed that like something had happened. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, there's I think there's a difference between mischief and malice, and I think that he tiptoed straight into malice once he started mailing books to the navy. Yeah, he really wanted them to get involved in this, and uh, I think at a certain point he crossed the line from having fun with this to pretty much buying his own story. Oh, for sure. Uh, so getting back to the article, the fifth countermeasure is discover and test independent sources of information. So uh, things like questioning witnesses. Well, like he did with Dudgeon. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are hundreds of people who worked around there as well as all the officers, right? And so I, I do understand that, like, the Navy coming out and saying that nothing happened is one thing, right? Because they're kind of... Uh, to a conspiracy theorist, like, of course they have to say that nothing happened, right? But to a layman who just works at the harbor, uh, saying nothing happened holds a different kind of weight to it. Exactly. And the sixth and final one is, as I just mentioned, disregard any claims of secrecy. Well, that goes back to everything. It's it, even uh, the stuff we talk about now with UFOs and disclosure and all that stuff. It always comes back to something's being hidden and they don't watch the dough. One of the more interesting things that I forgot to mention, though, is that uh, John Keel uh, did some research into this and discovered a couple of really interesting things. So the Manhattan Project, some of the um, arms of it actually were... Uh, being worked out in the Philadelphia Naval Yard uh, during uh, the mid-40s. So, you know, uh, in terms of, like, secret projects, there actually was a secret project there, but it wasn't the one that everyone thinks of when they think the Philadelphia Experiment. It was something just a lot more, uh, quote-unquote, regular. It wasn't regular at the time, but now we look back and there's nothing fantastical about it at all. Yeah, and uh, during the Warriors, he also found out that a magician named Dunninger, uh, a famous guy in his own right, was saying that he can make dis uh, ships disappear. So maybe the basis uh, for some of Alan's claims uh, can be coming from there because a lot of people perhaps remember Dunninger saying those things. 
Well, yeah, I, I like the John Keel quote of him saying years later, his poor, confused, schizoid brain would combine the Dunninger claim with the Manhattan Project's cover stories and the legend would be born. Yeah. And I do think that's an interesting way of uh, melding those two together. Plus, the actual testimony of someone who is aboard one of these ships uh, invalidates the theory uh, onto itself. And then, yeah, like I was saying before, like uh, were these people to have died fused to the hull of ships? How do these families not go to the press with this, considering how many people would have died in this instance, right? Exactly. Uh, it's like, oh, my, uh, my husband, uh, half of him is metal now. <laughs> Thankfully, that is not a problem that's happened, though. No. And just when we thought we were done with the Philadelphia experiments, there appeared on the horizon a wrinkle in the time stream. The late 1980s brought about a sequel of sorts to the tale of the Philadelphia experiment. Next week, Double Density explores Preston Nichols, Al Bielik, and a host of other characters as part of the Montauk Project. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun to go over. And again, for two weeks in a row, uh, we're not two weeks in a row, but twice now. Uh, something that Brian says we're going to do next week is something we're actually going to be doing next week. Reality is a really weird thing, Angelo. I want you and I to conduct our own little experiment, but this one is a social experiment. We want to see what happens if we get uh, more uh, Apple podcast reviews, right? Yeah, and I'm always weary of asking for reviews because I don't know if they do much at all. I've listened to many, many podcasts over the years. Some ask for reviews, some don't. Uh, I don't know if they actually do anything. And I'm... (laughs) And in a way, I don't want it to sound like we're just soliciting reviews to solicit reviews because we think they're actually going to do something. I really don't think they do anything. But if you can, go and review us in Apple Podcasts. It'd make us be happy to know what you think. And I would be curious to see if it actually does anything. And we'll report back. Yeah, I'm very curious too. And uh, I'm going to ask all of our listeners to demand boat disclosure. That also sounds like an excellent idea. Uh, are they going to post are they going to put that in the review as well hashtag boat disclosure I hope so that'd be pretty interesting along with release the Donkey Kong tapes <laughs> and with that we conclude episode 46 of the double density podcast as always you can reach us on twitter double underscore density facebook.com slash double density a podcast same thing on instagram head over to double density.net to check out all of our episodes as well as uh, click on the contact page to see what we're all about and if you take a look um, sort of under the hero image on our main website, there are a myriad number of ways in which you can subscribe to the podcast, including through Stitcher, uh, Podbean, Castro, etc., etc. There's so many options now to listen to podcasts. Uh, we were kind of talking about having to putting our podcast on YouTube again like we used to, and we both decided it's uh, not really worth the effort because i didn't realize this but it takes about an hour for it to be uploaded to youtube which is bonkers to me well to encode to be encoded as well as uploaded yeah yeah it makes no sense uh please if you want to listen online just go to our website there's a great uh, podcast player there We'd actually also like to hear if anyone does actually listen to podcasts, non-video podcasts, we should say audio-only podcasts on YouTube. We want to hear why. I'd be very interested to find out why people do that. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that on the show if you have a reason why you listen to podcasts only on YouTube. But if that's the case, you're not hearing this. uh, And if you find this out, it would be very strange. It would be kind of weird, right? I, I think so. They were compelled to go listen to this podcast. They heard it calling. 
and they listened via a different way that they normally do. To me, it's it's it makes no sense to listen to a podcast on YouTube, but tell me why you think it is. For me, podcasts live in my phone. It's pretty much the only way I listen to a podcast is on my phone. Uh, before that, it was the namesake of podcasts. I listened to them on my iPod, my third generation white iPod with the click wheel. I got to wrap things up because I got to go play Super Mario 64 too. So I will see you next week, Angelo. See you, Brian. These glass filled domes of, uh, no, we could cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> see, see where that was going? <laughs> ah, ah, there's a child trapped inside me. Help!